host, Dr. Kay Eyre. Some students find it difficult to engage in their learning. Emotional and cognitive difficulties can affect a student's motivation to learn and may make it difficult for them to participate in class-based educational activities. Music is a unique medium of engagement and creative communication. There is a growing body of research that has emerged shedding light on intriguing links between music and a variety of cognitive functions, including temporal order learning, attention, and auditory verbal memory. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Karen Salvador. Dr. Salvador is an assistant professor of music education at Michigan State University's College of Music, where she teaches courses regarding music in early childhood and elementary general music, as well as graduate seminars in music education, psychology, and research. Her research is focused on ability-responsive music instruction and aligning culturally responsive and trauma-informed pedagogies in music teaching. Dr. Salvador is joined by her PhD student, Rebecca Dewan. Rebecca earned a master's degree in choral conducting and a bachelor's degree in music education from the University of Southern Maine. She taught music in Maine for 13 years before beginning her doctoral work. Through her research, she is exploring anti-racist education and working to incorporate trauma-informed practices into the music classroom. Dr. Salvador and Rebecca, will be interviewed by Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy and myself. I hope you find this interview helpful. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Trauma-Informed Education. My name is Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy, and I'm here, as always, with Dr. K. Eyre. Hi, Kay. Hi, Govind. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Oh, well, this evening for you That's and right. me. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking from across the globe, really. Today. That's right. And we're really excited to have Karen uh, and... Rebecca here to join us. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Excellent. Um, so I might just kick off um, with our first question and dive right in. Um, so I, I might start with you, Karen, if that's okay. So this podcast is for educators. So we, we usually start by asking our guests about um, where they went to primary and high school and perhaps how that kind of shaped them in terms of the work they do today. Sure. I went to primary and high school in Eaton Rapids, Michigan, which is a community um, that had about 7,000 people who lived in it at the time. So it's a, a bit of a rural town, but it's close to the state capital of Michigan, which is my state, and to Michigan State University, where I work now, um, which is interesting as an academic I don't think I ever thought I would land so close to home um and my mother was my primary school music teacher and so I always um felt like I would be on a path towards music although my first goal was to sing opera and then um 
Um, my undergraduate study was in music therapy. Um, when I decided that I wasn't going to be a performer or the world decided for me that I wasn't going to be a performer. And then um, when I graduated, I worked in traumatic brain injury rehab for a year. And um, I then taught uh, English in Japan because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And when I got home, my mom needed someone to be a music educator in the school district where she taught and asked me to be a substitute teacher until they could fill the position. And I never left. So, and that was in my hometown doing the job that my mom had done while I was in primary school. So that's how I got here. There you go, things coming full circle. We never think <laughs> happens. Um, Becca, I'll throw it over to you as well to tell us about your background. Yeah, thanks. I grew up in a small town in Maine, the northeasternmost state in the United States um, on the coast. And I lived in the same district, grew up in a really uh, small town and had the opportunity to participate in a lot of music. I was involved in everything. So when I finished my high school um, experiences, everyone assumed I would go into music. And I said, no, if that's what everyone thinks I'm going to do, then I'm definitely not going to do it. So I started off um, in my undergraduate degree not doing music and then very quickly realized that that's what I cared most about. Uh, so I transferred uh, back home and pursued a music education degree um, and taught for a number of years, for 13 years um, in two different school districts, some in very rural parts of Maine where they had a potato harvest, like schools shut down so that the whole community could harvest potatoes. Um, and then I moved back closer to home and taught for another number of years. And now I find my way um, to studying at Michigan State University um, to get my PhD in music education. So that has been my pathway through music. That's fantastic. Thank you for, uh, to the both of you for sharing that. Um, I guess my first question was going to be about um, how you thought about the place of music and music education in our, you know, general education today, and especially how you thought um, what role it plays with academic and social emotional learning at school. Um, I, I might throw it over to you, Karen. Did you have some thoughts about that? Yes, um, and what I'd like to do is um, I'll answer kind of from the early childhood and primary perspective and then toss to Becca for a secondary perspective. Um, in terms of the role of music and instruction, um, with young children, I think that um, they have an innate musicality. That means not only that music is a good pathway for achieving other academic outcomes, but also that musicianship is just something that should be educated in every child. And um, by educated, I mean that they should be provided with opportunities to be immersed in and experience a lot of different musics and ways of being musical, and that teachers should follow children down the paths that they lead us. And the reason that I think that relates to this idea of trauma-informed pedagogy um, or of social and emotional learning is that, uh, particularly with young children, I don't think the domains of their development are are able to be separated from one another. And so um, we can't just say right now we're only learning music or right now we're only learning math. Um, instead, I believe that um, a more cohesive approach to the whole child is necessary. And so that's part of the reason that I think that music educators need to be better um, prepared for social and emotional 
um, domain learning, but also the reverse of, I think that um, engaging in the enjoyment of music making is one of the best ways to bring children into a feeling of safety at school or a feeling of relationship with teachers. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you, Karen. Uh, Rupaya, did you have any thoughts from a secondary school perspective around the role of music? Yeah, I'll echo what Karen said about the whole child approach to education. Um, that certainly resonates in the grades, um, the teenagers that I have worked with, the adolescents. However, when I've been working with students, it's always been at um, an elective perspective. Students are not required to participate in music. So I have worked with the students who live and breathe music. It's the reason they come to school, but also the students who are there just to get their art credits so they can graduate high school. So working with a variety of students and needing to provide them opportunities to feel successful in the classroom. And I think that really resonates with the ways that we can set up our classrooms so that whether they are going to pursue music after high school or whether they have no desire to ever perform again, really incorporating ways for them to think of themselves as being musical that doesn't necessarily require um, them to have a certain expertise in performance, I think is a way that we can engage students um, across the age span. I, if you don't mind, I'd like to just say that um, when I was the job before the job that I have now, I was in Flint, Michigan, and I don't know if in Australia you've heard of Flint, Michigan. Um, they had a um, water crisis recently that had to do with um, lead poisoning and a government cover up. And but before that, they were a community that uh, experiences a lot of uh, violence and uh, financial insecurity and um, that job insecurity is a big issue. And I just, um, working in the schools in Flint and um, working with preschoolers in Flint, um, the integration of music into learning spaces, um, again, created that opportunity where children who um, had a lot of instability in their lives um, would feel safe. And I don't know how else to say it, it's a, it's a really interesting feeling to be the music educator in the room who greets children with a song and a child that she's never met before comes and crawls right into her lap. And that happened to me quite a few times. And, and that says a lot about a child who um, would need to do that, you know. Um, it's, it's an unusual response to go to a stranger and request um, lap sitting. And so that really made me think about the responsibility that I have as somebody coming into that setting to know a lot more about um, these children and what they need. So. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I think Kay would probably speak to this as well. I think there's a real power to engage, you know, music and, and engaging kids in music and being able to offer a, you know, way of expression, but also a way of being able to have something else to focus on for them to make sense of things that they don't necessarily have words for or have, um, you know, um, making meaning of. Uh, I, I was just thinking, um, because you were talking about um, giving them a sense of success. I have a little daughter um, and I sometimes watch her, you know, pull out a box of musical instruments and, you know, really 
put on a performance and we have to all sit there and clap. And <laughs> but but I was sort of thinking about you know that process where you know how some of that gets lost to you know where you start to get more self-conscious and there's more self-evaluation and things like that. And I thought about some of our you know some of the kids who struggle with school anyway, you know, in terms of having those kind of self-evaluative kind of thoughts and being anxious about that. I just wondered if either of you had some thoughts about how you could make music and, and and music education sort of cipher to, you know, step your toes into and, and you know, make it something that doesn't seem as daunting um, for students. I had the privilege of working in a school district um, in grades eight through 12. So maybe 12 or 13, um, all the way through age 18. And so I had a number of students that I saw for those five years and how much does a child change, right? From when they're 13, all the way through 18. So I would oftentimes meet students in this eighth grade, because we had an eighth grade through 12th grade building and they were very oftentimes, I can't speak general um, generalizing, but oftentimes very self-conscious and very reticent to sing. And I was teaching primarily chorus. So I was asking students to use their body, use their voice to participate and express themselves in music and in my class. And I realized and then had to be okay with this realization that I could not force students to participate. I could not force them to sing. Um, instead, I had to create an environment that was okay, that felt safe for them. And I think by doing that, I could, if I was able to do that, it was by building a sense of self-efficacy in them, them developing the sense that they can be successful um, by building relationships with students and also building a space where it's okay to not know how to do something. It's okay to fail. It's okay to not be perfect. And so I think one of the, the strongest reflections that I heard from one of my, I think they were in 11th grade by the time they gave me this reflection, um, a bass, um, a male singer that I had all the way since eighth grade. And he said, in this class, in this ensemble, I learned that it's okay to not be perfect. And that's something that he took with him in so many other spaces. So if I can, as a teacher, create an environment, and I do that by showing vulnerability in myself, you know, acknowledging when I don't know something, acknowledging when I've made a mistake, acknowledging when I'm just in a rotten mood and it's affecting the way I'm teaching, um, then I can create that space where students also can recognize in themselves that it's okay not to know and it's okay to try something like singing in this new register or this new song or this new rhythm or this new skill that I'm asking them to do and to, to experience that in an embodied way and to be okay with it might maybe feeling awkward or maybe not knowing and building that relationship with me and the student, but equally important building that relationship in the community of the classroom. Because if they, especially early on in the time that I had them in early adolescence, if they are sitting in a room of their peers and their peers might be judging them or they think their peers are judging them, then I'm gonna have a hard time as a teacher encouraging them or being successful and encouraging them to sing. So I think those are some of the ways that I tried to build a safe environment for my I, um, when I've worked with adolescents, it's been undergraduate teacher education students. So um, I have taught the course many times. That's for undergraduate primary education majors on how they would use music in their classroom. So these are not people who necessarily see themselves as musical. And I find similar things to what Becca said. Um, 
one of the things that I do is I begin the class each, each time I teach it. The first thing I do when the class time begins is I sing to the students and they generally look at me like I have grown uh, several more eyeballs. Like they just, their, their jaws drop and their eyes open. And, um, and at first they feel like what, what is even happening here? But, um, I, I believe deeply in the power of play. And so I try to set up very low stakes, playful situations where I just ask people to speak back to me and then gradually start using more sounds kinds of interactions and then move to voices. And it's easier because I have them pretend like they might be their students in the future. So they're learning how to how to interact with young children at the same time. But I still think if I were to go back to work working with older children, that that idea of being playful and um having short, low stakes conversational interchanges is something that I would keep. And then with younger children, um, I use manipulatives like puppets and scarves and shakers. And um, I find that um, I try to hear the interest of the child and then create in the moment um, song experiences that have to do with whatever it is they brought with them that day. Um, so we've had stomping songs and um, silly songs that just arise out of what the children were doing. So I'll just throw it over to Kate to see if she had any questions or comments. I was just thinking of the um, the little secure faces that I recall when a child didn't feel confident and they could hold the triangle or they got the tambourine, you know, so that they could participate. And um, and I was it, I was interesting, Karen, when you talk about the undergraduate space because um, there's so many here in Australia. The curriculum for our undergraduates is so prescribed by the accreditation bodies that we find that we feel that we're losing our grip on the creative arts, music and finding space in there to to you know to do more than a token touch of those type of um, areas of curriculum and I think it's like you both said it's so important for the classroom teacher to feel like Rebecca was saying about her students to feel confident in being part of the music education of their little people, in my case, because here I think it's the same where you are. Music in my day, showing my age, I needed to teach music. I didn't have a choice. I needed to teach art. I needed to teach everything. Um, and so it was just, you know, don't complain, learn, you know, just get on with it. Whereas now a music specialist takes that time teaches the the early childhood space classes music it is the teacher's spare time to plan so there's quite a disconnect between my responsibility or my involvement as an educator in music because somebody else takes care of that and it's physically in total total isolation from my teaching day because it happens in another building by somebody else and I don't even see what's going on so I think that in itself is, um, yeah, just a little bit of a, a negotiating type of barrier that I think 
from an educator's point of view at uni, we have to be mindful of that they're going into a situation where a lot of our students' perceptions is, well, I don't need to teach music anyway. The music specialist does that. So, you know, it's not as important as as English and maths because I've got to teach that. So I better pay attention. I see arts integration as critically important for the uh, for the classroom teachers. And mm. um, I think you're right that that skill development for them so that they can be confident enough to um, bring that into their classroom. Um, I think that that applies in our conversation today because um, if you can't sing and play and create with children, I, you know, I maybe I lack training in other areas because I cannot imagine how it would create the kind of classroom culture that I want. No. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that um, your anecdote there, Karen, with your undergraduates and I was thinking about how it's a really nice way. It almost felt like you were playing some version of Peekaboo, but with kind of with older, <laughs> older people. And I wondered how you could have those sort of developmental experiences, but sort of in a in a grown up in a different kind of setting and context, and how uh, therapeutic that would be. And and also how sometimes you you know you put a guitar in the hands of somebody and you've got people really paying attention and really, you know, kind of disclosing things that, you know, they've never talked about before or things like that. I wondered what your thoughts were um, about how, you know, music helps with building relationships and rapport, which is such a big part of trauma-informed practice, about how you see that um, operating in that space. Uh, A few things. One is that um, many, many times I've been in situations with groups of people where my fallback was because this is just, these are the things that I know of how to draw attention or of how to bring people together, that I just got them started singing, um, singing something or clapping something or moving something. And even the most um, jaded undergraduate students generally will join in um, once they see how the enjoyment or the group cohesion that comes from those kinds of activities. I actually had a veteran from the Afghanistan war that was in my um, music and early childhood class. He was an education student when he came back. And on the first day of class, he came to my office after class and he was like, I am not singing and dancing with these women. And I talked to him a little bit more about um, that. And he disclosed, you were talking about disclosure. He disclosed quite a few things about um, the jarring experience of returning to the United States from where he had been. And um, I said, you know, do what feels safe and what feels good. And um, bit by bit, try just tiny pieces. Um, And... Eventually, he became um, really a kind of pillar member of that community. And it turned out that he had played cello as a younger child and was actually quite musical, just was having trouble with going from the kind of, um, I would say, toxic male uh, atmosphere where he had been into this early childhood singing and dancing space. And so I think that on the one hand that 
uh, moving and creating music together breaks down barriers and brings people attention. I think shared, I think joint attention builds relationships. And I also think shared responsibility for a product builds relationships. And, but the other thing is about disclosure. I get a little worried sometimes about music educators because we don't have training on how to, um, what do we do when someone discloses something to us that's really sensitive? Because that's the part where um, trauma-informed pedagogy and creating a safe place that has secure relationships for students is critically important. But I actually have found that music um, brings disclosures sometimes from students and that I think that one of the most important things that we can do as music educators is listen and then um, use our trust to take that student to someone who knows how to work with that disclosure. So I'm um, Becca, I don't know what your feeling is on that. Yeah. When I've done, um, when I had been working in a high school and, and working on really sensitive, um, topics, I did that in conjunction with our school counselors. So I let them know in advance, I'm going to be working on this specific topic. And then, um, they had that heads up. They knew which students were in that class and then when I was working on the, that music um, during the rehearsal, I could say to my students, the guidance counselors know that we're working on this. So you have a free pass to just, you know, eyes up, heads up, let me know and you can leave and you can go check in with them because I can help you make great music. I am not trained and I don't feel confident in helping you work through some of the therapeutic, need, therapeutic needs that you may have. Um, one thing that you mentioned earlier about connecting with students and creating that environment. Um, one thing that I did that was a way for students to let me get to know them on whatever level they wanted to was um, at the beginning of the year in September, I would, um, they, I asked them to share not only a song with me that was really meaningful to them. Um, these were probably 17, 18 year olds. I said, share a whole album with me. Now at the time I was traveling 70 minutes one way to work. So I had a lot of time on my hand where I could listen to a lot of music. Um, but I asked students, I said, the requirement is that you share an album with me and then I'll listen to it and I'll respond. That's the requirement. If you want to, you can also share with me why it's important to you or what I might learn about you through listening to this, but that's not required. I'm not mandating that you write any words. What I wanted to create with my students was a way for them to share with me music that was important to them so that I showed interest in them as people, but also interest in them in the music that they liked so that they knew that what we were doing in our classroom wasn't the only type of music. They didn't have to value the specific pieces that we were working on at the moment. They could also show me these other styles of music. And I learned about such great music that I didn't know existed from these students. And so it was a great way for me to connect with them as people. And for them, some students chose to give me a story or a vignette, or like this was the first concert I went to with my dad, you know? And some students just did the assignment, shared the album, and that's fine. It, it, it was something that I could talk about with them after I'd listened to it. I said, oh, student X, hey, listen to that album that you, I loved that piece, or wow, that was really, unsettling to me. Tell me what you like about it, because I found it a little jarring. <laughs> so it was a way for me to create relationships with students. Um, and they didn't have to talk if they didn't want to. They could do it through music. I've yeah. also seen a lot of success with folks create having students create a playlist of their life. Just 
stated broadly, create a playlist of your life that has at least, and, and like said, a number of pieces and, and the explanation part is optional. And, um, and also then sometimes you play that music as students are entering your classroom space and students can say that was on my playlist or they can choose not to. Um, and so that also creates an opportunity. It's very interesting when more than one student had something on their playlist and then there's a connection between those students that sometimes the students didn't know that they shared that connection. Um, particularly like kids have a tendency to feel like I'm the only one here who likes X, Y, Z and, and to cast themselves as very, um, unique and uniqueness is important, but also ostracized sometimes. And then they discover that there's actually a community of folks who also enjoy, I don't know, I'm thinking Bollywood music. Like there, there was a group of kids that that was what they were into. And they figured that no one else had ever heard of it at their school. And like that, this is a school where I was in Flint. And then it turned out that other people were like, oh, I love that too. Oh, that's really great. Um, I, I remember working, uh, I mean, I had the good fortune of working with a music therapist um, in some of the public work I've done. And I remember um, Kate saying how uh, songs and music are like metaphorical heavyweights, you know, they, they, they just have all this meaning and um, symbolism to them, which, you know, and, and I think young people tell you so much yet so little, you know, when they communicate that. Um, I wondered if either of you had any experiences of how, you know, for particularly for students who are really struggling, that music's kind of helped with, you know, them regulating really difficult feelings or being able to engage in school a bit better. Um, I think, Becky, you were mentioning that you perhaps may have had a story about that. Yeah, I was, um, after teaching at the school that I last had it for a number of years, I was seeing a startling number of notifications from the school counselors that this student or that student was out of school because they were hospitalized um, because for various mental health issues or suicide ideation, there was that was happening numbingly often for me as, as, the, as, the, as, the, as the educator. And I didn't know the, um, the circumstances of that, nor did I need to. I don't think that's um, necessarily my place. Um, and I was just struggling with my role as the teacher what do I do when the student comes back to class? How do I, um, do I engage students in discussions about some of these mental health crises that are going on? Um, and I, for a long time was dragging my heels and said, no, that is not my place. We don't talk about, we just do music in music class. Um, and then one of the drama teachers I was working with um, had a piece of theater that they were really interested in programming um, that also dealt with, uh, dealt with some of those mental health issues. And I said, ah, what if we did an interdisciplinary, um, actually first when she suggested, I said, no, I, I'm not willing to do that. <laughs> then I said, I took a step back and said, well, what if we actually planned it as an interdisciplinary night of theater, music and art, where we really dive into some of these struggles that these adolescents are having with, um, with choosing to enjoy life and choosing to live. And it's not something that I can just as an adult pretend it's not going on because these students have these feelings, not all of them, but some of them do. Um, and so we, the an art teacher, a theater teacher and me, the chorus teacher connected and worked on a program um, that 
specifically dealt with hope through adversity. That was the night, um, the evening that was called. And so our stage was set up. We had it in a black box theater. So it was a, um, a stage that the, the audience was sitting very close to the performers. We had black pillars that we had the artwork um, where students, um, high school students had created art around the theme of hope through adversity. Um, we had multiple small plays like 10 to 30 minute plays around that same theme. And then a number of choral pieces um, that my students in the chamber choir performed. And the, the mainstay of that piece um, was a, call, a piece called Please Stay um, by Jake Brunstadt that was based on tweets that people had put out about why they chose to keep living. And it was mostly adolescents. Um, and I, first I brought this piece of choral music um, to my principal and to my school counselor and said, is this okay? I had never asked permission before to do a piece, but I said, is this okay? This is a really heavy topic. Is it okay if we dive into it for these reasons? And I brought in the, the fact that so many students that I saw were struggling and I, as the teacher, didn't know how to, how to help them. What was my place to help them? Because I'm not a music therapist. I'm not a therapist. I'm the music teacher. And so with their support, with the administrator's support and the guidance counselor's support, um, I brought this work to the students and I said, students, this song called Please Stay, where we're we talking about the lyrics are like, you are not a burden, you know, please stay. We don't want you to go. Um, and I said, this is really emotional. And I handed it to them. Um, and I said, do you want to sing this? And we listened to it. They sat with it and they said, this is going to be really tough, but yes, we want to dive into this. Um, so it was a, a really emotional um journey, you know, through balancing, working on the music aspect of it, like, okay, we're going to work on a crescendo here and the diction here, but then also working on and, and integrating the emotional aspects of this is some really heavy topics. And so, and different students had different levels of connection with the material. And so really valuing what that piece and the whole evening meant to everyone and giving space for everyone's different emotions um, was important to the rehearsal process. And then the presentation of it um, in this small intimate theater that we had created was the most, um, I think the most powerful and profound performance that I had created and given the, the students the opportunity to participate in. Um, so that inter interdisciplinary work um, was one way that we approached struggles that the students were having through music and through art and through theater. I just would like to add that this is part of the reason that um, when I was writing the article that was um, maybe why you ended up contacting me about the um, overlap between trauma-informed pedagogies and culturally sustaining pedagogies, um, it was simply to say that sometimes, well, the need for trauma-informed pedagogy and the need for culturally sustaining practices overlap with one another. And um, there are similarities in those asset-based pedagogies. And one of the things that was just taught to us as music therapy undergraduate students is that the only music that, not the only music, but the most um, effective music for therapeutic practice um, is the client's preferred music. And so when you when we start thinking about the ways that music could draw in a child who's struggling, uh, one of the things that uh, becomes of paramount importance is that we use music that is the child's preferred music or the, um, the home music. 
And um, so even though teachers and music, uh, general teachers and music teachers are not therapists, if they are interested in um, creating relationships or safe places, one of the things that they might consider are things like Playlist of My Life. Um, if they don't have the expertise to do what Becca was talking about doing, where they created this interdisciplinary experience, which sounds amazing, um, that they really think about learning more about preferred musics. And also part of culturally sustaining pedagogy is that they wouldn't assume on the basis of the uh, of their perception of a child's identities, what that child might prefer, but instead that they would really seek to find out. And so I think what I really enjoyed hearing in Becca's story also was her um, allowing choice among the students. So are we going to do this? And then also creating space for students to process instead of just saying, you know, uh, we're going to do this piece of music that's about an important topic that y'all care about, but then not creating that space, which is possible. Um, so I just think that considering the student's voice and the student's choice within what we're doing, whether that's by allowing them to select the music that we're using or by ensuring that they are buying in and um, expressing themselves throughout the process is critically important to this idea of relationship building and trauma-informed practice. That's great, thank you. I'll just throw it over to Kay to see if she had any questions or comments. No, I'm I'm all good. Thanks. It's lovely. It's just interesting listening to all the wonderful things people are doing. One of the things that was interesting, just between both those things, um, Karen and Becca, you were talking about was, I think, you know, I think with trauma-informed work, we know a lot about the power of, you know, rhythmic, repetitive um, uh, movement and, and experiences um, and how, what a powerful influence that has over our nervous system and, and how it regulates us and and, and once we're regulated, we can do wonders. And I, I was struck by how you can have a whole spectrum of those experiences, isn't it? Right from just being able to, you know, have a crack at banging a drum or even like being in a class all the way to doing something like you were talking about, Becca, you know, where there's lots of meaning and emotion and, and, and in many ways, you know, you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable, um, you know, in front of an audience and things like that. And uh, it made me think about how a lot of music and music related activities were part of a lot of culturally sanctioned ways in which we thought about grieving and, and healing and things like that as well, and how perhaps some of that is has, has been lost over time. Um, I, I didn't know if either of you had any thoughts about that, just about, uh, you know, how, you know, music can help with those things, but also how we can kind of be respectful and responsive to those cultural elements there as well. I have thoughts on the first part of what you said, maybe I'll leave the second part uh, to Karen, but the first part you talked about, um, you know, embodied ways of experiencing music and how that cross body motion can help with students and that. My very last professional development session I sat in as a teacher, it was the end of my teaching public school, K-12, I knew that I was going on to PhD work and the very last professional development I had was an introduction to trauma-informed pedagogy. And what the, the school counselors were introducing us to was 
things, ways that it was the end of a, um, a three-part session and they had talked about um, building relationships with students and attachment theory. And then they said, okay, we've talked about all these terrible things, hard things. Now we're gonna tell you what you can do in your classroom and what they had us do, a whole auditorium filled with um, teachers. And they had us do some deep breathing. They had us do some sort of cross body arm exercises. They had us do some vocalizations. And I thought, I'm sitting in a choral warm up. I'm there treating us like a chorus ensemble. This is what I do. And for me, that sparked my interest, not only in what I can do to help my students, but it felt like what I, what I was learning was what I was missing from how I could help my students. Like the information that I was receiving about how trauma affects the brain um, and what I could do in my classroom was really inspiring and felt like a powerful way that I could help. Um, and so that's what sort of drew me to looking at trauma-informed work. And also I was listening um, to your most recent episode with the physical, th uh, physical education teacher. And I thought, everything he's talking about is what we do in music too. <laughs> so just that sort of embodied physical work um, is so interdisciplinary. Um, and I think that there's many ways, not just in chorus, I've been talking with band teachers also, instrumental ensemble teachers who um, integrate mindfulness into their regular warm-up practice so that they are not only attending to the needs of the musician and the instrument, but also attending to the needs of the students. I think that that's ways that we can approach um, mindfulness and em embodying, um, just paying attention to our body as as we approach um, as we approach making music. To the extent that um, right now, you know, social and emotional learning and trauma informed pedagogies are a little bit buzzwordy in the United States. I don't know if they are also in Australia. Um, but um, when people are using those buzzwords in support of music education, they're saying, well, you know, we were always doing this. And I'm not convinced of that. I think that a teacher has to be mindfully applying frameworks in order to use them. You can't say, oh, but we were always doing this um, when you didn't know that that's what you were doing. At the same time, I've never led a choral rehearsal that did not start with breathing exercises, vocalization and stretching. Um, and now that I understand how to call someone's mindful attention to checking in with their body and their emotions as a part of that practice, I see it as, as easily integrated. I want to go back a little bit to what Govind was asking about with regard to, um, cultural practices for grieving. And, um, I don't know that I thought about it in specifically that way, but I do think that, um, one of the things that interests me is that across times and across cultures, there are ways that people have used music and it's had to do with ways that we soothe our babies and ways that we communicate with a higher power or with nature that we believe in and with ways that we grieve. And so if we were thinking about trauma, it does seem like returning to group practices of um, music's that are participatory. And what I mean by participatory is that um, our music programs are often geared towards um, taking a piece of music that students could not uh, even, they could barely attempt at the beginning of the process and building their, their skill with that particular piece of music and polishing it up for a performance where they sit separate from an audience and play for the audience, not with them. 
and um, the audience behaviors are silent listening and the performer behaviors are performing a, um, a polished piece of music. Whereas the music that I'm talking about, participatory music, you know the success of the music if everyone joins in. And those cultural practices of musics where everyone joins in, whether it's to express joy or celebration or to express grieving, are things that I would really like to see us return to. And I don't know about the role of schools in that and the cross-cultural nature of schools makes that something that would be, you would need to be very thoughtful in how you approach that. But I also see great um, promise in bringing communities together through those practices. Oh, that's great. Um, thank you. I, I know there's a movement here in Australia where they have things called a pub choir, um, which is so quintessentially Australian, <laughs> but they get everyone together. And, and it's, it's and I've just watched YouTube videos of, you know, people talking about their experience of it. And, and I remember this lady saying it's, you know, anytime you're singing with people, it's always a spiritual experience, be it in a church or in a pub. And and I thought that kind of sense of it being something bigger than yourself and, and, and you know, being part of uh, something bigger is quite powerful in itself, I think. Um, I wanted to share a little anecdote with you. Uh, Karen, you spoke about arts integration. Kay and I have had the good fortune of working with a school in the Northern Territory here, which is the Northern kind of part of Australia um, with a lot of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Indigenous children in the school. And the music teacher there had designed a song around some of the self-regulation skills that um, we had been working with the school on for over a few years. Um, and they, I think they kept it as a surprise, didn't they, Kay? We were there for the morning assembly um, and there she was, the music teacher was right up the front with <laughs> the guitar, and they sang the song about not flipping your lid, and it was like this two or three minute song with all these little kids singing, and it I had goosebumps. It was the uh. powerful thing to watch, and and they you know they they'd sing it every morning apparently, and and it it really was such a kind of example of how you could really pull things together, um, and how music can you know, be a vehicle to be able to pull that together for them. Um, so I just had any, I was just curious about your thoughts about experiences like that, where, you know, music has been used uh, in a way, not just in a music class, but in other contexts to be able to, um, you know, support education engagement. Yeah, the there's a teacher that I was talking with last week, and she was telling me that, um, um, her student council, she works in an elementary school, so that's um, children ages 5 to about 10 or 11. Um, and the student council of that school was talking about um, race and race relations in the United States and um, wanting to understand, but also wanting to like kind of think through their own role. Um, like, did do children play a part in racial healing in the United States was essentially the question that they were asking. And so she and one of the things that's really cool is that she's a pretty amazing music educator. And so they had some skills already in this direction. And so she sat with them while they composed a song about writing their own history. And um, I want to get a recording of the song and play it to everyone um, who will listen because, um, 
there's something tremendously powerful about the hope um, of children and their their clear eyed assessment of what needs to happen. Um, and yes, I think it's incredibly powerful to allow them to not just use their voices to create music, but to use their voices to express um, important and difficult messages. I think sometimes we discount the ability of children to understand or talk about difficult topics, but they see a lot more than we think they do. And if we don't allow them the opportunity to work together with us to show us what they know, then we've really missed out. Yeah, no, that's really true. Thank you, Karen. Becca, I just had a question for you. You were giving that example about how you went in and checked in on the school counselor. That was just a really nice moment of coming together. I wondered if either of you had any thoughts about, you know, what maybe gets in the way of that happening more where there's some kind of, you know, exchange of ideas and incorporation of ideas or, or, or what makes for that, uh, that kind of collaboration to happen more of in schools? I think sometimes the barrier is something as simple as physical space. Oftentimes the music room is often a far corner, you know, maybe next to the gym or the cafeteria. And so it just, it takes a long time, those two or three minutes to walk down to somewhere else. And it seemed like such a silly or minute reason to prevent such profound things from happening. But oftentimes in, in the day, um, there's just, um, not time. Or um, Kay, you were mentioning earlier that oftentimes when kids go to music specialists, that's the time where other teachers get to collaborate or get to have team meetings or that's their planning time. So then oftentimes the music teacher is left out of some of those interdisciplinary moments. Um, and especially at a high school I worked at where I had um, or intergrade classes, multi-grade classes. So I couldn't say, okay, the 11th graders are working on um, this set of Shakespeare. So I'm gonna choose some some inter interdisciplinary units. It was harder to do that in multi-grade um, classes. So I think some of those are just, are barriers that seem impenetrable. But if we can get through those or um, create an idea and bring it to the administration, um, I was blessed with an amazingly supportive administration at my last school. And so I could bring ideas, inter interdisciplinary ideas to them and have the support to try to implement them. Um, but it really comes from uh, planning time, interdisciplinary planning time, and then the supports to perhaps pull kids from classes um, to have those powerful meaning moments. But if I think if students can see that what we do in one class doesn't end when they leave the door, the knowledge they have from this class, from science can travel to social studies, can travel to music, and it's all related. And we, we don't walk out into the world and all of a sudden we're like in math world and then we're in science world, it's just the world. So if we can create schools that are more interdisciplinary, I think that we'd um, perhaps, create avenues for students to be more open to experiencing things um, and making connections in those ways. What I heard in Becca's response was also that she was proactive. And I feel like a lot of um, interactions with school counselors are reactive. When we've had a child who's already experiencing crisis. And, and of course, that's a reasonable time to go to your school's counselor and work with them. But I, I think that um, 
this goes a little bit to um, some other sort of uh, systemic factors uh, that have to do with teacher overload and teacher burnout um, that sometimes that capacity to be proactive and think about how will I um, facilitate a relationship that um, creates opportunities for this counselor to be proactive, because I'm sure that counselors would prefer to be proactive rather than reactive as well. Um, but I just think that um, too often my perception is that folks are feeling a struggle to even um, approach their duties for their own classroom for that day. And so I also I think there's a broader systemic um, issue of trying to make sure that the school understands the teamwork and proactive nature of what we do and making sure that we have time and space. And also, frankly, if teachers are going to be called on to be trauma-informed, um, they themselves have to have those skills of self-regulation and they themselves have to um, really exercise, frankly, um, self-awareness and self-control to degrees that I'm not sure we've prepared them to do. I'm not sure they have the skills that we want the students to have. So I think there's there's more there. It's fantastic. Thank you very much. I'm mindful of the time. I'll just throw it over to Kay if she's got any questions or comments. When you were talking, Govind, about the work we did with the school in Alice Springs and then um, we were talking about Rebecca and folk being proactive. There, there are, as we've suggested through throughout our chat tonight, I think so many practical little ways that we can just incorporate. And I, um, just when we were talking about the school in Northern Territory, one little simple change that they made was they got rid of the school bell, the you know the bell that rang, and they replaced it with. Um, family members of their Indigenous children singing Indigenous songs and they, those songs were their transitions to playtime and back in from class and and just hearing their own culture, um, you know, um, was so powerful for those children, that sense of belonging and 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 yeah, a, a little bit, a little bit more trust and a little bit more safety and security just dribbling in there by just that single act of let's get rid of the traditional ding donging bell and let's do something that's meaningful to culturally to ninety nine point nine percent of the the school, you know. Um, so yeah, you can proactively just do little things, I think, and it's yeah really important to do so. Right. Thank you, Kay. Um, uh, I've got a last question. We'll finish with this. Was there anything that you, uh, either of you were curious about with your work at the moment? I think what I've been, so I just finished my second year of my PhD work and I am overwhelmed with how much information there is. <laughs> and I feel like the world of trauma-informed practices is so big and there's so much for me to learn. So as I think towards next year, as I'm planning to um, design a dissertation, I had to say to myself, I can't do it all. I can't try to study everything, period, or even just in one project. So what I'm choosing to work on and what I'm eager and curious about 
is the way that teachers negotiate critical conversations, difficult conversations in their classrooms, leaning into um, what are some of the struggles that they have in content or in reactions or in building relationships. But I think that's one small part of a much larger scope of, of research that I hope to be doing, but just how do teachers have conversations in their classroom? And, and that's what I'm curious to find out more about. I am headed on a research leave where my hope is to observe practices um, in early learning settings of places of a place that's been colonized. I'm actually looking at Kenya and hoping that that's going to work. Travel restrictions are, are just something else right now. But I want to look at um, the ways that cultures are sustained in early learning settings um, through music um, in places that have been colonized because we're thinking carefully about culture and decolonization in U.S. classrooms. And I want to see how um, other folks are working with that. So that's where I'm headed. That sounds fascinating. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Becca. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Um, did um, Karen, was there any resources or contact information you wanted to kind of share with people who may want to get in touch with either of you to um, collaborate or find out more? I'm happy to share that information. I can share that offline. Excellent. Very good. And we'll put those details up on the um, website as well. Thank you again. Um, we really appreciate your time and we hope we can keep in touch. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was our interview with Dr. Karen Salvador and Rebecca Dewan. To learn more about trauma-informed education, visit our website, tipbs.com. That's T-I-P bs.com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider providing us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Your feedback makes all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time.